Hallo, herzlich willkommen. Welcome to the show. This is Dispatches from Berlin and the first episode of a series called Memories of 1945. I am Caroline, I am a tour guide and I live in Berlin. Today, the 8th of May 2020, is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And in the city of Berlin, which also is one of the 16 federal states of Germany, it is a one-time holiday. Everyone in Berlin has a day off and was meant to be able to take advantage of all the many festivities and exhibitions and events which had been planned for this date. Now, Corona has changed all that. The official act of commemoration at Berlin's memorial to the victims of war and tyranny, the Neue Wache, with President Walter Steinmeier giving a speech, has taken place but only under severe restrictions and with no public gathering. I belong to the third generation, as my grandparents were adults during the war. But with younger parents, many of my peers already belong to the fourth generation, and there is already a fifth. 75 years after the end of war, there are less and less eyewitnesses for us to turn to. With more time passing, the feeling of some kind of immediate connection is continuously trickling away. So I've been wondering what my generation's role might be when it comes to the memories of 1945. Just passing it on might not be enough. In today's episode, I will talk to a member of the post-war generation, Steffen Rudolf, a former German diplomat and, like my parents, born during the war. He talks about fleeing after the war and growing up in the post-war years, and how he eventually learned about the crimes of the past. In future episodes, I will talk to friends, colleagues and historians here in Germany about different memories, controversies, but I've also reached out to friends, colleagues and experts abroad, so they can give me a better sense how other societies are dealing with their war traumas and experience. Well, to be honest, we, we, don't, we do not really talk about Second World War uh, a lot. It's not a big uh, topic. Not your typical dinner topic, Paul? <laughs> no, it's not like it, you know. It's uh, very rarely brought up. <laughs> Don't mention the war. If he had lived now, I would have picked his brain much more. But um, but he never he never spoke about the war. He started telling me as a little grandchild when I was six, seven, eight years old stories about the war that my father had never heard. And with my mom, though, my mom was, she was 10 when the war ended, so for her it was just trauma. She never really talked about it. In 1945, his career ended. I never, ever asked him a question. And this I cannot forgive myself. We did not ask questions. The first outtake was from my conversation with Paul Johansen in Oslo, Norway. With Don't Mention the War, he made a quick reference to the famous episode The Germans of the BBC series Faulty Towers. Then you heard David Tordi from Avieto, Italy. He talks about his grandfather who fought for the Resistenza. Then Boris Coronado, an American living here in Berlin with a German mom and a Peruvian dad. And at the end, Stefan Rudolf, whom we will hear more from today. Different generations, different countries and different sides of the front lines. But the hesitation to talk the silent agreement to not stir up the trauma seems to transcend borders and enemy lines. Another recurrent theme, though, is that with the decades passing, some open up at a later stage. I have often heard it in conversations with guests and experienced it with my own grandmother. Later in life, the grandchildren might get to hear the stories the kids never dared to ask or were told not to ask. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. So... <laughs> Don't 
mention the war is recurrent in popular culture ever since. But here in this podcast, in order to find some answers about the memories today and tomorrow, let's mention the war all right, respectfully and openly. Join me on a trip down memory lane, eventually across borders and across enemy lines, but today just down memory lane in Germany itself. Stefan Rudolf is a family friend. He grew up in the same village as me, and so he and my parents grew up together. We had met again some weeks ago when my parents were visiting me in Berlin. In retirement, he and his wife Renate had moved here. Before, they had either lived in the former seat of government of West Germany in Bonn, or had been stationed in such different countries as Yemen, Somalia, the United States, Algeria, Jamaica, and Hungary. I had met him the first time when I was 16. It was my first trip ever to the United States, and we visited them in New York, where he headed the political department of the permanent mission of Germany to the United Nations. I still remember his wife's ironic comment, Der Steffen ist schon regieren, Steffen has gone govern already, when my family came to breakfast long after he had left the house. On our last meeting, we had ended up talking about how Steffen's family came to the village we all grew up in, a rather remote location two hours drive north of Frankfurt today, in the region of Wittgenstein. Fascinated as I am with history of the 20th century, and always grateful when people are willing to take the time and to open up to tell their story, I was happy when Stefan agreed to chat with me on record, and in times of corona, it had to be over the phone. Me in my flat in Berlin-Schöneberg, and him in his house. Maybe half a mile away from where this uh, World War II ended, namely here in Berlin, Karlshorst, where we have the Museum Karlshorst, or the German-Russian Museum, where all this ended with the unconditional surrender uh, being signed, in fact, uh, at something like 11 p.m. on the 8th of May. First, we talked about that exact day and how Stefan remembers that day and why. After all, my parents, five and seven at the time, maybe understandably so, have no recollection of that day at all. I don't have any memories of the war itself, but uh, it is strange. The end of the war is really part of my, my memory for a number of very personal reasons. Uh, I was born not in this nice little place of Schwarzenau, where your parents and myself later grew up. I was born in the city of Chemnitz, which is in Saxony, not too far away from the border of was then Czechoslovakia. It was an industrial city. The Saxon Manchester, people called it, because uh, they had built up in the 19th century uh, industry producing locomotives, producing then cars, textile machines, and so on. I was born there in a city which during the war was heavily bombed. And only in the beginning of 1945, also the house in which we lived uh, was bombed. We were bombed out and we had to live with relatives on the outskirts of the city. And on that very day, the 8th of May, the, there was a road on which hundreds, if not thousands, of German soldiers were walking by foot uh, into the center of the city. And uh, in the vicinity, there was a quarry, and there they threw away all their arms, you know, rifles, pistols, bazookas, and so on. And I had a brother who was 11 years old, 
And he, along with friends, went to look and see what they were doing. And curious as the young boy was, he lifted one of these bazookas, uh, held it to his shoulder, and it went off and he was dead. So 8th of May was also for our family the date of the death of uh, a young boy of 11 years. Uh, and it is always uh, on the back of my mind when I think of that day. My father, who had, along with my uncle, a small factory producing spark plugs, he had been a Nazi. You know, not every German likes to speak about uh, the uh, Nazi history in his family. I, I simply have to admit he was a Nazi already, as I now know, since 1931. He came from a conservative family. He was the seventh child of farmers, and uh, so he made his way just as a, as a member. And when our region was occupied by the Soviet army, they were looking after all the persons who they thought might uh, become dangerous for the new regime to be built. I think it was two weeks later, my father went to the local bank. Uh, they told him that his bank account was closed, but they said, oh, you, hold off, you just go over to the police in order to clarify the situation. And from there, he never came back. He was taken into custody. He was taken to Bautzen. And fairly soon, he was taken into a camp in uh, Upper Silesia, which then became Polish territory, a camp uh, which had been put up by the NKVD, the Soviet uh, Secret Service. They held something like 9,000 people from Saxony. They closed the camp in the end of 1945, uh, but there were only uh, something like 4,500 people who were still alive and were sent home. My father was not amongst them. So I lost a brother and I lost my father uh, in a couple of days on and after the 8th of May. That's my memory of that day. After the death of his brother Rainer and the arrest of his father, his much older brother had taken over the company. All this was no reason to leave home yet, but then his mother started to be in danger of being arrested too. Actually, unrelated to the arrest of his father, the reason was that they had intercepted a letter which a friend of his mother had received. That letter had contained jokes about Stalin and had led to that friend's arrest. Now the police had come by to take his mother in for questioning. When she didn't show, they took his brother in her place, but he managed to escape. As a result, the two of them used a lorry headed for the British occupation zone to flee. Leaving me behind. Leaving me behind, yeah. because what would they do with me on, on the truck and on their flight? You were five. And that was which, which time? 46, early 46. I stayed, with my, I stayed with my uncle and family for about half a year and became a bedwetter. <laughs> Then, after half a year, uh, this uncle of mine, he took me over to Schwarzenau, the place where your family and my family met. 
Yeah. Was there a reason that they happened to end up there? There was, of course, it was the British occupation yeah. zone. Yeah. There was, of course, there was a lot of refugees. We have to yes. maybe explain a little bit. Schwarzenau yeah. is completely off the beaten tracks yes. <laughs> today. Yeah. And countryside, which meant, yes, there had been a little bit of bombs and also fighting, but basically it was agricultural and food was there. So basically refugees would not be allowed into the cities that were either bombed or had problems to take care of people. That is where it was somewhat possible to feed additional families. Stefan's older brother went to the place his mother-in-law happened to be staying at at the time. Mm -hmm. So this was one address he knew west of Saxony. And he went <laughs> yeah, there. Right? It's, it's so by complete by chance, it's basically. It's really right? complete, it's much com completely yeah. by chance. He wanted to go to Hamburg. And mm -hmm. then the cousin said, if you two go to Hamburg now, you will die from hunger. It's exactly what you mm -hmm. were just saying. There was no mm -hmm. way uh, somebody having no, no contacts, no base to survive in the city of Hamburg in early 1946. So they stayed mm -hmm. there. Do you remember, before we come indeed to your growing up in the post-war era, um, do you remember the sense of urgency or danger or anything of that? No, not really. I mean, I was really uh, taken care of by my, my uncle and aunt. Uh, they, I do remember they even sent me to learn to play the piano. There was nothing special which uh, remains on, on my mind. Only the fact that, uh, quite obviously, when I said I became a bedwetter, I really was missing, uh, of course, my family. You had said that Renate and you, when talking about this, understood yourselves as Nachkriegskinder, which is post-war kids or the yes. post-war generation. Yeah. Um, What did that mean to the two of you? What, what did that imply? Uh, what we mean is this is a period where the war itself was no longer present, but the whole life was determined by the repercussions of the war, the destruction of the cities, the scarcity of food to make a living was difficult and all that was there without the war being there anymore in that sense we really were post-war children we i think we went through a fairly hard period of time at, in those years Sabine Bode, psychologist, she had looked into that generation or she rather had worked with people and she realized that there was something about that generation that um, yeah. she calls Kriegskinder. So instead of post-war kids, the war kids, uh, which are those people that were born either between 1930 and 45, she described them as the silent generation brought up by parents that basically focused very much on the future and so a generation that then took from that very often as a as a general this is a very big generation um, that they didn't complain they were taught to be disciplined and work and at the same time coming out of this very difficult time with a strong longing for a stable and safe life as a generation can you see yourself in that at all when you say this i i th particularly think about the fact that i always say we didn't ask questions i think When uh, later on we started discussing the Nazi period, uh, it comes to my mind that we could or should have started doing this much earlier. Uh, if I may just give you one example. We had one person in this village of Schwarzenau. He had studied law. 
he became a high-ranking official. He served in Berlin as, I think, the deputy head of the police or so on. He later on was in Denmark in the German occupation administration. He later on was in Italy. At the same time, all this I know by now, he was also in some kind of contact with the resistance against Adolf Hitler. Uh, and he was questioned by the Nazis after the 20th of July 1944, when the attempt on Hitler's life had been made. But they couldn't prove that he was really part of the resistance. He was not regarded as a guilty Nazi, but at the same time, he was no longer accepted in the German public service. So this person walked through Schwarzenau every day, and we knew him. I was friend with his children. I never, ever asked him a question, and this I cannot forgive myself. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was... Uh, a person who could have talked to me about that period in which also my father had lived and whom I couldn't ask anymore, and I don't know what I would have asked him. But this is, I think, typical of many of us that we did not ask questions, and I regret, I regret a lot. Do you think, I mean, it's speculation, do you think he would have talked to you about it? Well, it's a good question. It's a good question. I really don't know. I really don't know. You're describing something that I think is very common, and that's why instead of silent generation, some have called it the speechless yeah. generation. Um, you and my dad share the experience of not having had their dad's return from either war or being arrested. Um, so it is also two and a half million half orphans that have mm. lost their dad. But in my mom's case, the the dad comes back. But she, both of them say like we didn't we yeah. didn't ask, and they both feel they both feel like they should have. Yeah, but I think one of the reasons why we didn't ask questions also is that we were concerned with the present situation and not so much with the past, which was the reason for the present situation. And the present situation, what was it, at least for me, coming from the East, was the East-West conflict, the Cold War, the division of the country. And all this occupied my mind, and not so much why this had come about, which we should have asked, of course. Can you recall anything how, which made you change or question the way you had looked at 45 and the times that came before that? Well, I think I can. What I mean is something that happened exactly 20 years after the end of the war, and that was the letter of the Polish bishops, which they sent to their German bishops, and in which they wrote this very famous phrase, we forgive and we ask for forgiveness. I mean, that... I still have it on, on my mind because of, especially because of the first part, we forgive, because that made me ask, what are they forgiving us? After we had talked on the phone, Stefan also recalled that as a student in Marburg in 1964 and 65, he and his peers had rushed to the bookstore on a daily basis in order to get the paper, which was reporting about the Auschwitz trials in Frankfurt. 
In those trials, men which had served in Auschwitz were charged with murder. What the victims, and that means Auschwitz survivors, stated under oath in that courtroom shocked the wider public, particularly the next generation, which had hardly heard of it before. Of course, a lot of Germans still wanted to be done with it and were enraged about the trial as such. But these were the early stages of Germans starting to look not only at their own business and fate, but, at least some, starting to look at it through the eyes of the others. The Polish bishop's letter with We Forgive moved some to look at Poland and what had happened there differently. Because self-centered views, supported by only a short historical memory, and Stefan was no different, had just seen a loss of German territory and the expulsions of many Germans after the war. But now? It made clear to me that in our relations with Poland, they were not only the ones who after the war had taken over a large part of, of German territory, but they were the ones who had been attacked first in 1939 and where all the cruelties of this uh, World War II had started off. So that was of a great importance for me and really led me to look much more closely than ever before into this whole period of 1933 till 1945. The Auschwitz trials, while often shocking, started something which I later would grow up with, namely to look at the Nazi past through the victim's eyes. Stefan's story of growing up is only one story. It is a story not untypical for his generation, but at the same time vastly different from, for example, my own parents, at least in parts. They also had parents who had supported the regime. My father's dad also died as a prisoner of war in a Soviet camp. My mom's father came back, though. While he was shortly imprisoned too, as far as we know for his membership in the SS, he returned. But they definitely grew up rather safe in comparison. Their families were the ones hosting relatives who had fled from bombed cities. Let me talk shortly about the everyday lives of Germans during and after the war. Yes, quite many Germans who had survived the war had it tough after. And for them, that sometimes stood in contrast to the time of war itself. That might be surprising, but when it comes to the majority's everyday experience, in terms of food and other needs, the early war years for Germans had been very bearable. The Nazis had provided for them. They had exploited countries they occupied in order to keep their own population fed and happy. That means that unlike other countries at war, Germans would only start to have supply issues in the last years. Those after them were comparatively hard. Those hardships, a lot of war dead, 12 million refugees after the war, and the division of the country led some Germans later to be of the opinion that Germany already had paid its price for what it had done. The attitude among many was, it is what it is. Let's move forward though, don't look back. Awareness of the suffering that Germany had inflicted on others was not yet present and came much later. And when Germans mention hardships or suffering during or after the war then and now, that is often highly ambivalent because one always has to ask why they talk about it and to whom. 
It might just be their personal story or experience, but when in conversation with others, pointing out your own hardships can be a strategy of deflection called self-victimization. It is used for not facing your deeds and for not taking responsibility. The critical decade for starting to get there were the 60s. And a huge turning point in terms of a rather wide acceptance for that look back took place in the 1980s and 1990s. A very important milestone in that development was the speech Richard von Weizsäcker, then President of the Federal Republic of West Germany, gave on May 8, 1985. The 8th of May was a day of liberation. It liberated us all. It liberated us from the inhuman system of Nazi tyranny. We cannot consider the end of war the cause of escape, expulsion and the loss of freedom that ensued. All that rather lies within its beginnings, the start of that very tyranny which led to war. We may look at the 8th of May 1945 not in isolation from January 30th, 1933. So, in 1985, Weizsäcker defines May 8th, 1945 not as a defeat or surrender of the German army, not as a turn to more hardships, but as liberation as liberation from the Nazi regime. And any hardships that came after were not rooted in that date, but rather in the beginning of the Nazi regime which led to war. So that is maybe not revolutionary itself, after all we have heard, but that the head of state says it, and the whole parliament and so Germans from across the political spectrum applauded it, is. He struck a chord. It resonated with his audience. And we can only assume that for some it made a difference that he said it, having been an officer for the German Wehrmacht in that war himself. What do you think when you hear that speech? I find it striking that everything he says seems so self-evident to me. But it was considered a really big deal then. To consider May 8th, 1945 as a liberation from the Nazi regime seems obvious. To consider the capitulation of the German army that day a defeat in any wider sense seems strange and wrong, actually, to me. But it is also no big surprise I think that way. While Steffen and my dad were five when the war was over, I was five when Weizsäcker gave that speech. And my parents embraced that view too. I grew up in an atmosphere where Germany accepted responsibility for the crimes of the Nazi regime. My teachers made a point out of educating us about those crimes. My parents and I today do not have opposing views on this, but we got there differently. This is just to say that memories of 1945 have changed a lot with time. They are likely to change moving forward. But which change would be detrimental and which could be for the better? I will continue to look into existing ways of commemoration public memory and individual memories, trying to find a better answer to that question. This is it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and please hit subscribe if you want to join me again. You find Dispatches from Berlin on iTunes, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. See you next Saturday for another closer look at our ways to commemorate its beauties and its flaws. Thank you for listening. Be well. Tschüss. Bis bald. Bye.